Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, it's our annual 4th of July show, and we have three special guests join us. Lindsay Chervinsky, our friend from the 10 Things Initiative here at the Jefferson Hour, our old favorite, Joe Ellis, and the famous Chrysler. It's always fun to talk about the 4th of July, President Jefferson's favorite holiday. Jefferson opened the White House twice per year, once on New Year's Day for a reception, and once on the nation's birthday, the 4th of July. And of course, there's that argument about the 2nd of July. Joe Ellis, of course, as an Adamsite, believes that the 2nd of July was the day that really brought us our independence, but Jefferson's Declaration of Independence was adopted unanimously on the 4th of July, and as usual, Jefferson won the legacy. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current and historical events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. And good day to you, Mr. President. Good day to you, citizen. I would begin our conversation by wishing you a happy Independence Day, sir. The Fourth of July will be remembered through history not just as the birth date of our new nation, the United States of America, but it was also the moment when we lit the little flame that will eventually burn out all of the despotisms, all of the monarchies, all of the authoritarian systems, all of the tyrannies of the world, some sooner, some later, but eventually all. And when the long-term history of human freedom is written, one of the pivotal events will be the 4th of July, 1776. I, I feel so grateful that I was a small part of that occasion. You talk about the long-term history being written, sir. You wrote part of it. I wonder if you'd be willing to share those famous 35 words from the Declaration of Independence with us today. From the, from the preamble, of course, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Words that resonate with all Americans today, Mr. President. Well, this came somewhat from John Locke. Certainly it was born in the European Enlightenment that humans are not granted rights by priests or kings. We're born with rights. To be human is to have rights. And any government that is worth having respects, embraces, and cherishes those rights. And any government that does not cherish those rights is by that very definition unjust and must be reformed or, in some cases, overturned. In other words, humans are born with rights. They have a right to demand that those rights be cherished. And when those rights are trampled upon by government, the citizens must rise up if necessary using arms and shedding blood to reinstate their liberties with a government more in keeping with this sacred principle. Well, certainly we hope that there is no need to raise arms or shed blood, Mr. President, but it is a celebratory day. How would you recommend that citizens of my time note this holiday? Well, to celebrate, and we know that there's a certain anarchic element in American life that we like to celebrate with some parades, with orations, with fireworks, with picnics, 
possibly a quantity of ale or applejack, or in my case, Bordeaux wine, but that families gather and communities gather, and they remember that this is the most important occasion of the calendar for people in the United States because it was on that day, back in 1776, that the Second Continental Congress did a very difficult thing. And assuming our own self-government, when by any rational odds, this was going to be an almost impossible thing to make happen. But we did make it happen, and we proved to the world that humans are capable of self-government. And in doing so, we gave hope to thousands and, and, and probably millions of people worldwide. Well, finally, Mr. Jefferson, I know you would join me in wishing everyone a happy Independence Day. You mentioned uh, an, an, an attitude of anarchy that exists in American people. How do we temper that to make it constructive? Well, we need to remember what's at stake. Uh, it's not just a day for intoxication and for uh, lying in the sun or boating or whatever it is that people prefer. It's also a day to step back at least for a short period and reflect on what liberty means and what liberty costs. And that conversation should occur in families. It should occur in communities. But it should also be a self-reflection. I don't mean that we need to be overly somber about such things, but we need to remember that the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. In other words, 1776 was not the end of this process. It was the beginning of a permanent process of insisting upon human rights. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are welcome, sir. Good day, citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, our annual 4th of July show, and we're so pleased to welcome three of our favorite Thomas Jefferson Hour contributors. And we'll begin with Mr. Brad Crisler. Crisler, I call you, because you're like Madonna and Cher or Prince, the man with only one name, living in, in Nashville, Tennessee, and, and Chrysler, as, as our Jefferson, our listeners knows, is one of the few people who ever called our bluff and came to visit and insisted on seeing the barn. And with appropriate protocols and protections, we did make that happen. Welcome, Brad. Hi, it's good to be with you guys. Yes, moniker Chrysler, although I'm, you know, I'm a bit uh, put out now because you have a new nemesis in Lindsay. Uh, I, I feel like I'm not the brunt of, of your ire as I used to be, and, and it's a little hurtful uh, to me. <laughs> no, you'll always be Chrysler. You know, I have to treat her with respect and dignity. Ha! And I don't need to do that with you. So, and, you know, but you're the Newman of this thing, um, if you remember Newman on Seinfeld. But, you know what, I was just saying, uh, per you, uh, before we called you today, that we count on you. Uh, because you're so many different things. You're a singer-songwriter. You are uh, 
a painter, you're a collector of historic miniature paintings, and maybe more important for us than all of that is that you really do reflect a lot about where things are. And I remember getting a, an email from you a year or two ago in, in which it was clear that you were filled with, I'd say, despair and anxiety about the future of the American Republic. And so we count on you to, um, to center our conversations. And I'm really interested in, in finding out what you're thinking about as the 4th of July approaches here in 2022. Well, uh, you know, as always, I try to put on um, a blanket of gratefulness uh, because, per, you know, personally, I, I um, am very blessed and are lucky or however you would like to frame the cosmos, but I, I, I'm just eternally grateful for my family, you know, for my career, for the place I am in life, for my home and for, you know, provisions and all those things. And so I try to keep how I look at our current, you know, predicament and the state of uh, uh, the world through the lens of personal gratefulness. But I, I do uh, continue to be, you know, uh, not misanthropic, but just concerned about uh, kind of the direction we're heading. And I do believe, I believe 2024 may be uh, the ball game and, and respect, or at least the tail of the tape, you know, um, because I think I was just listening to the previous week's podcast with you all and Joe Ellis, and I was just thinking, um, you know, the, the guardrails that held uh, won't hold again, I don't believe. I think we either have to decide to have new guardrails or we have to um, uh, kind of put a put a bow on it and say, well, that was the experiment because I, I, I feel pretty dark about how things are lining up uh, for the next election and all of that. But, you know, history is our oracle. And, uh, you know, I tell my daughters all the time when they ask questions about, you know, where we are and has it ever been like this? And, uh, you know, I, I just have to return to history and say, you know, they're, they're, the sky has been falling, as David likes to say, you know, you live, you both of you guys lived through the late 60s and, um, and the sky was definitely falling then. Um, I know we're, this is a different time, but... Uh, but I have to look, you know, look at history and think. Well, there is hope of an, of the other side, you know. Well, just a couple of quick things, and 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 we want to ask you what you're going to be doing on this Fourth of July specifically. But um, yeah, yeah I, we, David and I lived through the late '60s, um, and they were a tumultuous time. But we thought we were giving birth to the age of Aquarius. In other words, there was a deep hopefulness that a new wave, a new era, of peace and prosperity and and self-government um, and a changing of the guard was going to happen. It didn't quite work out that way, but this one's different. This is a pivotal moment, but but I don't see a lot of signs of hope. And, and my, so my question for you is this, the January 6th hearings are really um, amazing. They're not over yet, of course, uh, at the time that we're recording this. Do you think that they will A, make a difference and remind Americans of what's at stake, B, simply be a wash, and when they're over, it won't have made a, won't have moved the needle, as we now like to say, uh, an iota, um, or C, 
just further disillusion the American people? Where are you on what this is likely to be? Because we remember the Watergate hearings, and they had a huge ameliorative effect on our politics. Mm, yeah, and very different. I'm, I'm not sure who the John Dean of the January 6th co committee could be. I guess it could be Mike Pence if he decided to participate. But I'm probably in the B category in that I think as with most uh, things concerning our you know, current politics, uh, the sorting has already happened. Uh, you know, people, uh, you know, as you know, Fox isn't really covering uh, you know the the hearings to any any degree, and so the, the the people who would whose minds would be changed, or or maybe there would be some enlightenment in terms of new information. I, I believe those people who might learn some things that uh, would be helpful are probably have dismissed them as as partisan. You know, a, a witch hunt, as um, as they have been called. Um, so I, I don't think it will make much difference, and it will just further exasperate and um, and terrify you know those of us who who understand the depth of what happened on Jan January sixth. So I, I don't uh, you know again I don't want to <laughs> cast a shadow over our time together, but I, I do believe that it's you know I, I'm a I'm a realist and an observationalist, and uh, I don't I'm I'm not a Eeyore, uh, I, I can't be that, but I, I do uh, try to contextualize the information that I process, and I have to be honest, I, uh, and I live in a part of the country where, and I know as you do too, but you, you get, you know, if you go into the community and have coffee and just have conversations, or mostly just listen, ask questions and listen, you get a, a pretty, uh, you know, pretty stark um, uh, read read on where you know partisan um, ideas are and, and thought, and I don't have a lot of hope that we're moving in a direction that is too hopeful. So. Goodness, this is getting pretty dark for an Independence Day. You know, I, um, I if I may interject, I, I you know I think it's it's pretty simple. Um, people on both sides of these questions have the same desire and fear. That is that. Um, America is going to be ruined by the other position. You know, maybe it's as simple as we need to redefine what America is. And I would hope that that is not uh, a direction of authoritarianism, although some people want that. Um, so you know, I kind of wish we, we had, a, we had a, a leading national figure that was, you know, Reagan-esque or something that could bring us to, to that conversation. I just disagree with you slightly on that one, David. And again, it's a 4th of July program, so we don't want to go down this rabbit hole too long. But, you know, if we're playing Monopoly, if the three of us are playing Monopoly um, and David Swenson is winning and Chrysler is losing, as one might expect, if if Chrysler uh, throws the board up and or tosses it over his head or says, I'm going to light fire to your tokens or I'm going to punch you in the mouth every time you buy Park Place, um, that's not... That's not America. America is playing by a set of codes and rules. And when you lose an election, as uh, say Al Gore did under somewhat suspicious circumstances in 2000, you nevertheless concede, give a gracious speech, help the other side take over and become the loyal opposition. So we have, we have to agree to play by some rules of engagement here. And when they break down, all bets are off, I think. 
Well, isn't that what this is about, is changing the rules? January 6th and everything that's, it's, it's about changing the rules. It's, it's about using force to change the rules rather than process. I think, you know, in a larger philosophical uh, context, I was, again, thinking about what you and Joe, what you all were talking about. You know, the, the, the argument and the basis of so many books that, you know, the Academy is involved in in American history is the meaning. What is the meaning of the American Revolution? And uh, I think we're still trying to figure that out. Those arguments that you all make uh, so uh, clearly, you know, when you talk about the 1790s and, and the, the formation of political parties and the idea about what kind of, what does it mean to be a republic? Uh, I think all of these questions and e even in the midst of great ignorance, you can still see that we're trying to answer those questions. We may not realize that's what we're doing, but it feels like uh, that's the nature of the experiment is asking questions. What do we want? and how do we want to achieve what it is we want and for all of its frustrations and um, terror at the current moment i still believe that's what uh, we're doing and so the jury is still out and as it has been out for many many uh, decades um, i don't know if that helps framing but i do think it's uh, i do think it's what's going on Hey Brad, I hope you I hope you have a great fourth. It's really good to talk to you. We need to get you back on the program uh, more often. Yeah, I, I miss you guys. I, I listen and of course enjoy every week all the conversations with Lindsay and Joe and between you guys. And before we say goodbye for this segment, do you have any message for the Thomas Jefferson Hour listeners, Brad? I just I uh, hope that the, the Jefferson Hour continues to grow, and for all of you listening please continue to support and uh and not not just listen but take to heart and um and spread the example of civility and and deep um informed conversation and kindness above all kindness thanks brad happy fourth we feel like truly that we're old friends and companions and we so look forward to our conversations with you so bless all of you on the 4th of July and send, send a photo from whatever crazy thing you wind up doing down there. <laughs> we will, that's great. Thank you, bye-bye. And we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, our annual 4th of July show. I know Clay and I, we both look forward to this every year, talking about the 4th and what it meant to Jefferson and some of the things that happened. And we're so fortunate to have Lindsay Chervinsky join us, and uh, not for a 10 Things episode, but for some reflections on the 4th of July. And thank you so much, Lindsay. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm excited to be on one of these July 4th episodes. And when you think of the 4th of July, what do you think of, either personally or historically? Well, I think of a couple of things historically. I, of course, think about the first 4th of July and the the celebrations, the Declaration of Independence, Washington's instructions for the Declaration to be read to the troops, what that must have meant. Share, share that story with us about Washington. Sure. Well, so after the Declaration of Independence was signed, they had a number of copies printed and sent to various people. So people across the different states, as well as to the commander in chief of the Continental Army. And Washington was in the middle of his worst summer of the war, in the middle of a series of very embarrassing defeats across New York. And as a way to boost morale, decided to read the Declaration of Independence to the troops who he had ordered to to gather. And as the myth was handed down, the troops were so inspired by this declaration, they then marched up the island of Manhattan and tore down the statue of King George III and melted it for bullets. Whether or not that's exactly how it happened, I think it's a really good (laughs) metaphor for the moment and sort of the inspiration of of why they were fighting. I think about the, the foreign implications of the Declaration of Independence. A lot of Americans don't learn the, the, that key aspect that the Declaration was really designed to justify this revolution to monarchs across the world and to reassure them that they were not trying to topple all of these governments. I then think of the other July 4ths that I sometimes think of that are important, the Constitutional Convention, what that must have been like to be there on July 4th and trying to desperately come up with a second chance of the federal government. It's impossible to not think of the July 4ths when John Adams and Thomas Jefferson died. And then I think of things like the Civil War. What did this? What did the July 4th mean at moments of crisis like that? How did that appear to people? So that's sort of the historic context I think of. Personally, and I've talked about this in some of our other episodes, I love the United States so much that I feel compelled to criticize it. I'm sort of bastardizing that famous quote. I love America more than any other country in the world. And for exactly this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. So I believe that we are an imperfect union. We are, we should be constantly striving to be a more perfect union. And so therefore July 4th is always a little bit bittersweet for me because I think of the things that we have done better. I think of the things we have improved And I can't help but think of the things that I would like us still yet to improve. So let me ask you a personal question, if you don't mind. How do you plan to spend this 4th of July? Typically, I make some sort of a cake that is American flag themed. I love to bake on the side. And so I I make some sort of dessert that is appropriate. And then I usually read history, which I do all the time. But I think it's an important thing to do, especially on July 4th to think about sort of where where we are and where we want to go. So you have a cake, you're on a deck chair, reading history. Um, maybe you see in the distance some fireworks. Perfect. That's a great day. What And what's the perfect meal for you? Well, I really like the tried and true, like, American barbecue. I really like a good 
grilled chicken. I really like corn. I really like watermelon. Ideally, there would be, as I mentioned, some sort of sweet and then adult beverage, ideally iced because it will be hot. So I really like to go sort of all in or depending on the year, I will confess on years that I felt particularly dark about things. I've I've gone ironic and I've done like Indian food or Mexican food just to be difficult. Wow. Food snark. David, what do you do for the fourth this year? Well, I tend to get up early in the morning and I turn on my computer and I find the Thomas Jefferson archives and I listen to them all day. No, you don't. <laughs> A, I, I had you just for there for that much, right? I was I, I, until you said all day. I almost believed that one. Yeah, <laughs> I, I you know I, I you had pointed out to me recently how long my tenure has been as the semi-permanent guest host, and how much I've learned about Jefferson. And you know, I have to say it's it's it, in all seriousness, it's had a real effect on me learning as much as I have from being on the show and and listening to, you know, all the great guests and, and yourself, Clay, um, learning of the history of the American Revolution, which, you know, most of us from our era grew up, and it, it it's almost like a cartoon, a caricature of, you know, Washington crossing the Delaware and all these great things. When you get down to the nuts and bolts of it, and maybe read Rick Atkinson's history of the American Revolution. It's it's not that at all. It's individuals who have made decisions of self-sacrifice in order that we can live like a bunch of spoiled, you know, uh, civilized folks in our own era. So I kind of I kind of go there on the fourth and and try to remember how much we owe to the founding generation. I hope that's not too preachy, but it's a true thing for me. No, it's it's from the heart. So I'm, I just want to say quickly, I'm with Lindsay. I think of the more perfect union. I'm not a big fan of the Declaration of Independence. I know that sounds like heresy, but I'm a fan of the vision of this country, a republic, a self-governing people, a people constantly striving to be rational, to be just, to be enlightened, to be tolerant, to be inclusive, to to create something unprecedented in the history of the world. And we all know how difficult that would be under the best of circumstances. But I feel that we have slipped dramatically into radical materialism and, and narcissism and uh, indifference um, and a kind of uh, almost a hostility to the very idea of, of, of a civic religion. And so when I think of the 4th of July, I just want America to be my dream of America. And I think my dream of America has been touched by Thomas Jefferson, but not solely by Jefferson, but also by Washington and John Adams and Abigail Adams and Thomas Paine and even Aaron Burr. Um, so I want more from my country. And I always have this slightly melancholy feeling that aren't we supposed to be like the world's class act and how did we ever let it slip away? And can we reinvigorate this thing? That's me. And I think we all three share that or we wouldn't be doing this sort of program. But I'm not fond of the beach and the beer and the brat because I feel that that is an escape from the conversation we need to be having. And that conversation doesn't need to be ponderous or 
or tedious or you know academic but every american i think on the 4th of july should do a kind of a how we doing conversation with the persons around them and i i'd like to see a lot more of that i think well going back to you know what you said david about the founding generation i always think that the very best way they were brilliant men that did the best that they could under the circumstances, but they were deeply aware of their own flaws and limitations and what they hadn't yet been able to achieve. And the best way we can honor their sacrifice and their memory is to try and continue to improve upon what they did, because that was what they expected of us. And by not doing that, we are letting them down. You know, you, you told the story of, of Washington reading in the statue you know, I've got two preeminent historians in front of me. What other stories can you share about the fourth? This story has been told time and time again, and I, I, I don't in any way want to make it a myth. But I think the most perilous moment for our nation was the Civil War. And on July 4th, the Union won a pivotal victory at Gettysburg, and the Union won a pivotal victory at Vicksburg. And they were the pillar victories in the West and the East that eventually led, of course, you know, there were things that happened in between, but eventually led to the Union victory. And while in no way those victories were planned for that day, the power and the significance of that moment is extraordinary and should almost be, be viewed as a, almost like a vow renewal for the union and what it what it could be and what it should be and um i think we're probably due for another renewal here but that is a that is a really important moment in our national yeah, story what's at stake here yeah. and how big the stakes are so just i have a more lighthearted one for you david the fourth of july 1805 at the great falls of the missouri river in what's now montana the lewis and clark expedition has discovered the falls and lewis wants to move on to the source of the what he calls the mighty and heretofore deemed endless Missouri River. And they're beginning their portage around the falls, and the captains have reserved just a little bit more of the whiskey supply, and they hand out the last of the whiskey on the 4th of July, and Clark says they had a beautiful meal of a saddle of venison, his favorite frontier meal, and the men had their grog, and then he said they got a little merry because they had been without alcohol and they were working so hard and they danced and they sang and they celebrated the birthday of America until a thunderstorm came in around 10 p.m. and then they settled down for the night. And when I think about that, I just take great joy in that, that A, they knew what day they were at, B, they can't be there doing this without thinking about their patron Thomas Jefferson back and wondering what he's doing on the 4th of July, 1805. They know some of it, that he's having his twice annual reception with much more interesting food than they're having on the Lewis and Clark Trail, but I'll bet it wasn't as satisfying. And then this idea of knowing what their their destiny, their mission is in part deepened by the fact that they're aware that this is the 4th of July. And I would love to have been part of that one uh, and hear Pierre Cruzat and George Gibson on their fiddles and the men pairing off and dancing Virginia reels and singing and chanting and boasts and toasts and dissing each other and all the things that happen when there is a, a very extraordinary moment. Sacagawea was not well right then, so she probably wasn't looking on with perplexity or joy, uh, but she was there and so was her infant child, Jean Baptiste. 
Lindsay, we're undoubtedly going to be talking to Joe Ellis about the 4th of July. He, he being the Adamsite that he is, always brings up uh, the 2nd of July as opposed to the 4th of July. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, he's right. I mean, John Adams was right. That was the big day. It just, you know, John Adams often didn't have his say in how history was remembered. Um, so in, in some ways, it's actually the perfect John Adams story because he was totally correct. It's just that history had its own way of remembering things. So poor John Adams. Not only correct, but contrarian. What could be better? I love it. I, I have such fondness for, for John Adams. And, um, you know, I, I, I find that he is no, he is an endless source of entertainment for stories exactly like that one. Agreed. Agreed. Okay, let me. I'm gonna. I'm gonna read something to both you and Lindsay, which I just love. Um, hang on, just a second here. And thanks, Lindsay. This oh, is my real, pleasure. Real sporting of you. I appreciate oh, it. Oh no, happy to do it. Quincy even came in and joined for a second. Yeah, it was great. That's the first time I've seen him. Oh well, I'll He's... have to have him come back and actually introduce yeah, himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Saw saw a great tail wag there. A white tail. Yes. A white tipped tail. Yeah, yeah. So just. We, we all know that John Adams on the 2nd of July said what he said about parades and fireworks and dancing and orations and so on. But here's something he said later in his life that's one of my very favorite John Adams quotations because he had this sense that he was a martyr, that nobody really understood him, that he could never make himself understood, that he was born to be uh, the subject of persecution and criticism and distrust. Here's what he said. I have compared myself to an animal I have seen take hold of the end of a cord with his teeth and be drawn slowly up by pulleys through a storm of squibs, firecrackers, and rockets flaming and blazing round him every moment. And though the scorching flames made him groan and moan and roar, he would not let go of that rope till his hold he would not let go his hold till he had reached the ceiling of a lofty theatre, where he hung some time, and at last descended through another storm of burning gunpowder. That's John Adams. That is such a great self. Wow. That's a beautiful, beautiful comic, exquisitely comic um, simile for the life of John Adams. And you have to love him because imagine Jefferson saying a thing like this. You cannot imagine. You cannot imagine Washington saying a thing like this. You cannot imagine Madison or Monroe saying a thing like this. You can't imagine Abigail Adams saying this. One person and one person only could write that paragraph, John Adams. He was exquisitely self-aware of his strengths, of his limitations, of his sometimes outright ridiculous behavior. I don't know if I've shared this, but at one point he complains to Abigail. She's she's back home. This is before his inauguration and or is just after his inauguration. And he's begging for her to come and help him set up house because he cannot do it without her. He says he's hopeless without her. She makes all of these decisions. He desperately needs her. <laughs> she has like three family members dying on her and she's trying to take care of their estate. And he was like, why won't you pay attention to me? And he was like, my concerns are important. I think that you should pay attention to them. And then he writes, 
don't laugh because he knows that he's being so petulant at this particular moment and then he also says like please don't show this to anybody because he knows that it's embarrassing behavior and yet he's able to sort of be him so fully himself with her and so that you know he had obviously made poor choices and had his flaws of which I am currently sort of eyeball deep in at the moment as I'm heading into my summer of the Alien and Sedition Acts chapters but he was so self-aware and he was so acutely knowledgeable about how he operated and really could write a brilliant turn of phrase about those things to make fun of himself. But here's the thing. Here's the thing, Lindsay. We now privilege Adams for that earthy candor, that, that wearing his heart on his sleeve, that incapacity to, to contain anything that is burbling through him. In the 18th century, it was Jefferson, the creature out of a Jane Austen novel with decorum and grace and detachment and manners that was the, the great desideratum. And so Jefferson now suffers because he seems stiff and emotionally detached when he was an exquisite example of a certain high social style of the 18th century, and Adams was widely regarded by these same gentlemen as a volcanic mistake. And so the the style of how we apprehend history has really changed, and it has made a huge gain for John Adams. Well, I think that that's true, certainly publicly. I've, and we talked about this when we did our, our 10 Things About Benjamin Rush episode, but that I think that his openness and candor actually made people love him when they were able to be his friends. It just wasn't necessarily a all three of them. That's not particularly nice. This um, is this is just great that you know we we're talking about the 4th of little July. Snark there. We're talking about the 4th of July and it's it's ended up being about John Adams. That's just perfect. We love John be, Adams. As it should be. Oh my god, this is like as the it should most be. Don't you think that Thomas Jefferson is just like rolling over in his grave right now? I just think that this is so delightful. Uh, it's an image I don't want to go to. Before we say goodbye to you, Lindsay, do you have any holiday wishes for the American public, the Thomas Jefferson Hour listeners? I hope everyone has a safe and pleasant 4th of July. I encourage everyone to think about our very messy and complex origins and by all means, have fun with your family and friends and celebrate, but but take a moment to think about the you know complex place where we came from and we are in another complex moment and I just don't think that we should shy away from that complexity. Thanks, Lindsay. Thanks so much for all you do for the Jefferson Hour. You have just brightened our doorstep so much. Absolutely. You and yours have a great holiday, Lindsay. We'll see you after the 4th. And we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, our annual 4th of July show that we, I know Clay and I both look forward to this, and it being one of Jefferson's favorite holidays, even the more so. But we are now joined by the historian Joseph Ellis, one of our regular contributors to the Jefferson Hour. And Joe, I'm so glad you agreed to join us and, and talk about the 4th. Well, it is a big anniversary, and um, I'm known to say that some ways the date's wrong. It shouldn't be the 4th. It should be the 2nd. Here, here we go. Here we go. Well, I'm not going to you know, hear me out. Uh, Adams so, actually, someone needs to speak for poor Mr. Adams. Go right ahead. Yeah, well, no, no. It, it's, it, it's not just Adams. It's for historical accuracy here. Nothing happened on the 4th. They didn't they didn't sign the document on the fourth as the there was never a single day when they all signed. Most of them signed on the second of August. But the only thing that happened on the fourth is they sent it to the printer and the printer put July fourth on the top of the document. On July second, they actually voted for independence. And Adams always went to his grave thinking that was the day they would they would and he even wrote a letter to Abigail the, the day after saying Yesterday will be the day that we celebrate with with all kinds of uh, spectacular fireworks. He got everything right except the day. Um, uh, I do think, though, that the fourth becomes the day uh, at some point in the early 19th century. For the, well, up until the early uh, 19th century, they didn't celebrate the fourth. They celebrated Washington's birthday as the annual anniversary. And this has replaced it. Um, and I'm prepared to accept it. I think even in his grave, uh, before he entered his grave, Adams accepted it. Okay. And if you wanted to know that they eventually accepted it, guess what? The most important piece of evidence. They both died on July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary. The date was always wrong. They made it right. I essentially dying on that day. David, I hope you'll play these the song to the tune of Sour Grapes behind that little monologue there. No, no, you two. No. If no, Adam said no. Adam should have died on the second of July just to mess with Jefferson. Well, you know, this it's interesting. Like a lot of founders seem to time their death. I mean, Monroe died on July fourth. Um, Madison tried to make it and he just missed. He died on June twenty eighth. But they're like they're trying to they're trying to you know go out on the date and so that they it's the date it is the date um, and um, and I uh, and I think that both Adams and Jefferson together I'm not just being an Adams guy I, mean, I recognize that that it becomes that for us and and that the celebrations that we have now um, are appropriate in that regard and given the nature of the republic. Given the divisions, given the lack of a civic sense that's out there, anything on this day that can bring us together, talking to each other as Americans, proud of our history, together, anything that that does that is a good thing. Joe, you know, Clay educated me years ago about Jefferson and holidays and how he was pretty finicky about holidays, including his birthday, but he did approve of the 4th of July. If you were going to give citizens during our time uh, an assignment for the 4th of July, being it reflective or reading, what would you suggest? I would suggest they just reread the Declaration of Independence, especially the first part. 
what does it mean now? Especially the most important paragraph in American history, the one that begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident. To what extent do we still believe that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among these being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? And then once they start talking, I will ask them, what, how do they would define pursuit of happiness for them? Um, and what's the conversation go from there? About a week or so ago, we did a Jefferson Hour where I talked with President Jefferson as portrayed by Clay Jenkinson. And, and the subject was the cost of war. And, you know, I, I think of the 4th of July and I think of the American Revolution, how we owed so much to another nation, France. Oh, yeah. Without France's help, we would not have won the war, arguably. I wouldn't have won it when we did anyway. Yeah, it would have maybe. But, but you're right. In fact, when Pershing landed in France, head of the American Expeditionary Air Force, in 1917, his aide walked up to the French commander and said, tell Lafayette, we are here. Meaning, you saved us once, we'll save you now. I can't remember what book you wrote that in, but I remember it. But, you know, in this spirit of freedom and revolution, America now is aiding another country in their attempts to remain free. Yeah, if you're looking around the world now to see where the values of a of a free society and of a Jeffersonian Republic have the greatest potency or where they're on display in the most dramatic fashion. It's got to be Ukraine. This, that they are, they're standing for democracy against the attack of an autocratic regime. And that's the issue at stake and one that we Americans have a vested interest in. So David and Joe, I wanted to say a few things about this. One is about Jefferson's optimism. So the last letter he ever wrote was to Roger Waitman just a few weeks before his death on the 4th of July, 1826, uh, the same day as Adams died in Quincy, Massachusetts. And in that last letter, which Jefferson clearly wrote as a kind of a testimonial or a legacy letter, he said that all eyes are open or opening to the rights of man. The gradual spread of the light of science has already laid open to every view that the mass of men were not born with saddles on their backs, nor a favored few booted and spurred, ready to ride them legitimately by the grace of God. Let you got that phrase from a guy that was killed, a 17th century Englishman who was executed, I think during the English Civil War, but he wanted to go out saying that the values we hold dear will eventually the values that the whole world embraces. He said some sooner, some later, eventually all. In other words, that the, right. the republic idea that people govern themselves, that they have rights, that, they, that there is a social compact, that we distill our representative will, that there are limits to what any government can do, and that any government that exceeds those systematically must be torn down with violence if necessary. This is Jefferson's fundamental creed, and it is the fundamental creed of freedom-loving people everywhere, including the people of Ukraine. And the question is, when will they get the full measure of self-government? Um, Jefferson said in these letters, oceans of blood are still to be let before the world finally uh, accepts for every nation and every people the idea of the rights of humankind and self-determination. So I think that Jefferson 
again, for all of his paradoxes and blindnesses and hypocrisies and inconsistencies, it's Jefferson who honed in on these principles and gave them imperishable expression in the English language. And virtually every revolutionary movement subsequent to 1776 has borrowed from Jefferson, not from any others. Ho Chi Minh, who wrote the Vietnamese Constitution, began, we hold these truths to be self-evident. The problem with what you've just said, which is very uplifting, is represented in the... uh, Adams would say to Jefferson, look, uh, I believe in the principles that we've created too, but I'm not sure they'll be able to work in many other countries. We have certain advantages. We have an ocean to separate us from Europe. We have this vast expanse of of a continent as a kind of trust fund. Um, I'm not sure this is going to work in, say, France. I'm not sure where where they have, and he's right about that in terms of the French Revolution. I'm not sure it's going to work in Latin America. Um, I would then extend it, say, I'm not sure it's going to work in North Vietnam. I'm not sure it's going to work in Iraq and Iran. I'm not sure it's going to work in Russia. Um, that, that, that there's a certain set of conditions that give the American exceptional experience its exceptionalism that's not going to be translatable in the way that Jefferson, in his universal sense of it, uh, seems to believe. I say Jefferson would respond to that, Joe, by saying, give it time. <laughs> well, if we give it okay. I think that Ukraine is a perfect example of this. Here is a country that has long been part of the, the sort of the greater world of the Russian Empire and then uh, of uh, the Soviet Union, and it's only been free uh, a couple of times for short periods, but it's leaning west, it's leaning towards the liberal world order. Uh, it, there's a huge setback here, but I think the Ukrainians are, have already won the psychological battle, and eventually they're going to win the physical battle. And the world is going, and and the Russian people are going to see this, and they're going to say, if it can happen there, why can't it happen here? I do believe that we're in for enormous setbacks, don't get me wrong, and that Jefferson was naive about the exportability of all these things. But I think he was right, and I think George W. Bush was right when he said all peoples on earth want the same things. They want security. They want their children to grow up in a world worth living in. They want to be able to put food on the table. They want to be left alone to the extent that it's possible by government. And it, it, they want they want something, something like a free market of ideas and a free market of goods and services. And I think that's the Enlightenment. And I think these guys were right, Jefferson, George W. Bush, and others, and that in the long run, we have to keep that faith. Um, and whether or not those values do uh, come to dominate China. And that's uh, the biggest, con- the biggest, uh, second biggest economy in the world and the largest population. Um, and whether they work in uh, Middle Eastern countries. I think the place that's optimistic on that is India, uh, where I think you can see it. Um, but um uh, we are in the midst of an argument now in the world whether autocracy or democracy is the wave of the future. Autocracy v. democracy. And you know what? The thing, the sentence I never thought I would utter in the whole course of my life is, it's happening here too, the debate, autocracy right. v. That's democracy. Right. But you know, both sides of that argument, you know, they, they they both have the same worry, to me anyway, and that is whether or not America survives. 
they're, they're, each side is uh, convinced the other will destroy what America is. Maybe what we need to do is take time to redefine what America is, taking into account both sides of that argument. Mm. Uh, boy, that would be a, fake, a real accomplishment if we could do that. I do think that um, the the problem that the, that the United States faces is that the current government is dysfunctional, and that um, in some ways the values of the founding have it's like an engine that needs to be be fully what rebuilt. Um, um, and that uh, to the extent that we are the flagship for democracy, um, we can't get anything done. We can't function as a democracy. Um, and until unless that happens, um, uh, I can't see us carrying that banner very far. Um, uh, I mean, and uh, I mean, right now we're living through all these massacres and. 90% of the American people know what the right answers here are, and we all know that they're not going to happen. Um, uh, and there's movements afoot in multiple states, not all of them, the former Confederacy, to disenfranchise significant portions of the populace. All right. Now that we've got we've got that realistic pessimism from Mr. Ellis, as uh, as we close, and Joe, thanks so much for taking some time to talk with us on this 4th of July. But perhaps as we close, you, uh, Clay, could give us a little Jeffersonian optimism, and the both of you could take the opportunity to wish all Americans, and particularly the Thomas Jefferson Hour listeners, a happy 4th. Absolutely. I want to read something that I think is uh, one of the best things ever written about the 4th of July. Independence Day will be the most memorable epica. In the history of America, I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time forward forevermore. That was written by John Adams. And Adams went to his grave resenting the fact that Jefferson got all the credit for the fourth. But he still thought that the, the independence itself, whether you define it on the fourth or the second, is the single achievement of American history. What we did in 1776, to use Jefferson's terms, David and Joe, the little flame that we lit on the 4th of July or the 2nd of July, 1776, has been the flame of the Enlightenment. And the founding fathers were right that they were at or near the solution to the human problem. And if we despair of that, we are despairing of the greatest thing that ever happened to humanity, and we would be insane to turn away from it. What we need to do is educate, deepen our commitment, uh, encourage uh, young people to understand the norms and the civic religion in some way that doesn't feel oppressive or clunky, and we need to have a rebirth of our commitment to the idea of a republic, even at this very late stage of that historical process and to turn away from which would be the greatest mistake that humans ever made in my opinion happy fourth of july everyone i agree with what clay said and want to do exactly that and in the process however do it aware of what we're up against again yeah see there was one one last jab from john adams you know just when you think you've got optimism in the air 
Joe comes in and it's, says, it is, it is realistic optimism. <laughs> Joe comes in as usual, says, have you looked around, Mr. Jefferson? Have you looked around human nature, human nature, Mr. Jefferson? Well, I, I'm not, no, I'm, I'm not being, cause Adams himself is more pessimistic than I am. Um, and we're further down the historical road than we were then. Uh, and, and again, what I see before us are, are problems and ende endemic problems in the world and in our country that are not going to be easy to solve. And one of the things we haven't mentioned is climate change. And that's going to change everything. Um, and the, the extent to which we respond to that collectively uh, as, a, as a planet it will determine whether or not our grandchildren ever celebrate the 4th of July again. We appreciate you so much, Dr. Joseph Ellis, our special guest on the Jefferson Hour in this extraordinary 4th of July program. Thanks for listening. Joe, thanks so much. I appreciate all your perspective, even your pessimism. It's, it's necessary, isn't it, sir? Without Adams, without Adams, Jefferson looks like a utopia. And, but yes, thank you for letting me participate. We'll talk to you again soon, Joe. Thanks. Keep me on your Rolodex. <laughs> we will, of course. David, a wonderful 4th of July program. I always look forward to this moment every year. Thanks to all of you. Have a safe, patriotic, and joyful 4th of July celebration in this year, 2022. And with that, we'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson.